and welcome to episode 56 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furze. And in this episode, we'll be taking a look at Anne Fletcher's Dumplin', Jennifer Lopez's first film since 2015, Second Act, Joel and Ethan Cohen's The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. We'll be opening up the Cultural Capital Film Diary and throwing some attention towards some of the year's most overlooked films. But first, Alfonso Caron's Roma. Alfonso Cuaron's childhood memories form the basis of his new film Roma, which is now streaming on Netflix following an extremely limited cinema release. Set in 1970s Mexico City, the film follows Cleo, played by Yalitza Aparicio, a live-in maid working in the household of Sofia, played by Marina de Tavira. Sofia's bumbling husband is mostly absent from proceedings, it's not hard to work out why, and so it falls increasingly to Sofia, Cleo, and Cleo's offsider Adela to look after four rambunctious children. The stability of this particular family unit seems to be constantly imperiled, their Mexico City home taking on the air of a bunker shielding them from the world outside their walls. The film is mostly concerned, though, with following Cleo through her daily work around the house, as well as the odd excursion outside. On one such trip, she visits a nearby cinema, where she meets and falls for a young man, Fermin. When they have sex and she becomes pregnant, he abandons her. Other events creep into the narrative, from a New Year's Eve party at a sprawling estate, to the Corpus Christi massacre, a real event in which student protesters were murdered by a government-endorsed paramilitary force. At the centre of it all, though, is the story of this household maid. Cleo stoically endures everything the narrative throws at her, and it's a lot. Roma is receiving superlative praise from many, particularly for its stunningly shot black and white imagery. Eloise, were you taken with Quaron's vision here? Interesting that that's the final comment that you make about the film in your intro, because I, I mean, I do understand the praise for this film, but I don't understand the extent of the praise for this film. It didn't excite me, it didn't move me, really. In terms of the content that it's covering, it's quite significant, I suppose. But as an experiment in cinematography, black and white, I mean, making a black and white film is quite a statement these days. And I didn't think that the black and white was particularly special. I thought it was a little dull, to be quite honest with you. And it was filmed on a very, oh, what do you call it, like an expensive camera of this kind, like an Alexa something. Andy's nodding. What is it? Yeah, it's a 65mm, but it's quite small. Yeah. Like, I can't remember the name of the camera, but yeah, it is something very unusual. Yeah. So anyway, so Quaron was the cinematographer as well as the director in this case. And I didn't feel like the black and white tones gave it a rich enough look to justify the black and white. You know, if we're thinking about kind of Latin American, South American black and white films that are very slow and rich with cultural history, you know, of course I'm going to mention Embrace of the Serpent from a few years ago that was mm. I think my favourite film or maybe our collective favourite yeah, film. Yeah, it was, yeah. On the podcast, which was much, had a much higher contrast of blacks and whites and greys. And so I just don't think that that worked. And I feel like maybe the film would have been more exciting and would have paid more kind of homage to the culture if it was in colour. I don't know. It just it just kind of made the film 
very underwhelming for me in terms of the grandeur that it could have potentially had in terms of cinematography, panning shots, great attention to kind of interior detail and also landscapes, um, urbanscapes, that kind of thing. But did the story emotionally involve you? At times it did. And I did quite like the insight that we got into Cleo, but I suppose I'd come to it and I'd heard so much and I had read interviews with um, Libo Rodriguez um, or with Quaron talking about Libo Rodriguez, who I think has been interviewed. Was it a Vanity Fair piece yeah, that she talks in? Yeah, overriding. Um, yeah, one of the two. And I did like that and I appreciate that, you know, she is getting the chance to speak as well about her involvement in the um, film and mm-hmm. her involvement mm-hmm. um, and her, like, continued relationship with Quaron because um, she was his his maid when he was growing up. And so the, the story is essentially based on her tales, right? So Cleo is, is Lebo, essentially. So that kind of moved me, but I think I'd heard so much about that as a process that when I actually came to the film, it underwhelmed me. That it didn't seem like enough of a scope of her experience in that house. Mm, okay. Interesting. You think they should have spent more time with her and her friend, uh, the other one of the other housekeepers? I feel like maybe it could have been a three-hour movie, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I, I don't know. Yes, quite possibly. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I did then appreciate, I mean, I think it's important that even though it's kind of peripheral, that you do get this sense that Sophia is also, you know, having her struggle. And the her, matriarch of the household. The matriarch of the household yeah. um, is kind of, you know, the, the two of them together are balancing this household. Um, that That is a really key kind of dynamic, I think, as well. Yeah, mm, right. Yeah, true. I'm really surprised you guys weren't more involved. I mean, I do understand it is kind of weird by the time something like this gets to Australia, mm. there is like thousands and thousands of words already and all this hype and all this, okay, it's probably going to get an Oscars for this, this and this. And so that can't help but kind of colour the way you see it. Did, did you guys both see it on Netflix? I saw it in a cinema. No, I saw it in a cinema. Oh, too. right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's screening about three or four cinemas in Melbourne at the moment, I think. And I read a stat, 600 cinemas in 40 countries worldwide. Right, okay. Um, as well as Netflix. Mm, mm. Yeah. Uh, Andy, you had a differing opinion? Yeah, God, yeah. It totally worked for me. I was really emotionally involved all the way through. I mean, I saw it at the Sydney Latino Film Festival. Um, with a crowd that was very involved mm-hmm. and a woman that fainted partway through just at a particularly dramatic moment during the film, which uh-huh. kind of, I think, also coloured my experience. Uh, yeah, I thought there was a really amazing binding of technical achievement and emotional story. Like every time there was anything that was like, you know, people go on and on about the children of men, single take sort of thing. And I think we got this like multiple times over, but for a much, much better reason than, you know, than zombies wandering towards a car or whatever is happening. Oh, hang on. I can't remember what happens even, even there, in that It's type. inside in a staircase. It's kind in, of thing, oh, right? there's another one. No, there's in another one in a car where they're driving. Yeah, they're trying to, trying yeah. to get oh, yeah, when they're the driving. in the car. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway. Uh, yeah, but this time he used that sort of technical ability um, but for, to tell this a beautiful, like there's that scene with the riot that you mentioned, the Corpus mm. Christi riot. There's a seen trying to get to a hospital to give birth that was a single take there's a lot of shots of the elements like there's a fire there's the I really love that shot where Cleo is is standing on a balcony and looking at trees and then there are these sparks and they kind of look like stars and for a while I thought oh is this some kind of like astral phenomenon that we're watching yeah which was amazing and then before you realize it's fire you can hear the kind of crackles of fire and it maybe doesn't click in your mind but that way that that kind of built up was was pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, that was fantastic. There was an earthquake. So there's like all this stuff that the, the whole world is kind of throwing it, itself at her in a way. And it's just really interesting seeing her reacting in these different situations. 
um, and also by, you know, like putting these these quite emotionally satisfying at least for me stories alongside these long takes where you're kind of drawn in and then only afterwards you're kind of like oh wow I barely blinked and the camera hasn't cut to anything else I thought there was lots of examples of that which made me think this is a really exceptional film even though I could see a lot of people on Netflix going in the first half an hour yeah she's kind of washing a floor she's doing some chores I, I don't get it and they're switching off Right, because I do understand a lot of people going. Yeah, this is not moving. I mean, that's for me. you know, that's the um, curse of home viewing, I yeah. suppose, isn't it? Yeah, and also Netflix and the um, infinite, you know, streaming service. Sure. Um, yeah, and I mean, I'm glad I stayed for the whole film, mm. but I couldn't necessarily blame people though, because to me, it felt like Alfonso Cuarón was always there. Like it was just, I found it too self-consciously stylistic. And I, I guess I couldn't resolve in my mind what some of these motifs that he included were saying or what he was trying to use them for. I mean, Planes is one example. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's sort of is bookended by aeroplanes, the film, and they pop up here and there everywhere. I mean, mm. that opening shot, I mean, it's beautiful. It's basically sort of as the opening credits come up, uh, water starts from uh, which Cleo's like mopping the floor with just starts lapping over the shots so the shots of the floor and then this water laps in and out of the frame and then like it it forms a reflection and you see what's above the floor and then you see a sort of plane flying over in reflection i mean it's very beautiful but again uh, from the very opening scene I, i saw this shot and i thought well this is this is stunning like it's beautiful it's beautiful to look at but it just felt very self-consciously so. <laughs> really? Like, well, yeah, I mean, wow. what, I mean, what is the point of that beyond saying I can make a beautiful shot? Maybe there isn't, maybe we don't need a point beyond Well, we're it. getting a portal into her world, <sighs> essentially, through this water and the flesh, because water again recurs throughout the film. Yeah, well, like, it does, actually, it does, yeah. including, and I must say, it is an extraordinary shot, I think, uh, and the highlight of the film is, which is the what constitutes the film poster when they're all huddling together on the yeah, bench yeah, yeah, as yeah. a family. And it's sort of, I mean, it tells you the theme of the film, I guess, that sort of this family huddling together. But having said that, she goes through the absolute ringer and for what? The only time I ever felt anything was that kind of climactic sequence yeah. um, at the beach. That's yeah. the only mm. time I feel like I was affected by the film in that way. Mm. Um and I wonder whether it's because maybe you're right, Anders, like this film is just too beautiful. Like, you know, yes, she's going, she's being put through the ringer. Her experience is awful. Essentially, I suppose the point of this film is to say maids in Mexico were part of the family, which is true. It's a valid point. But I just don't think it goes about it in the right way to affect the correct, I don't know, correct is such a, funky term I shouldn't use it but like emotional kind of reaction to her narrative Mm -hmm. but did you know so I thought it was like an exercise in empathy like he's trying to reach out he's trying to do this thing for her she's he you know she does have joy she does have time with her friends and she Mm. gets to go to the movies and maids are people too I mean is that (laughs) is that not a very offensive thing to Uh, have a director say like uh, I don't no, know I don't know if he was saying that he was kind of I mean I don't think he did have access to her life to be able to explore yeah. it any deeper yeah, yeah, than watching yeah, yeah. her do chores and then knowing that she had these other experiences when he was that. growing up he yeah, made, I mean yeah. that's why he like asked her so asked Lebo so extensively about experience of her, her life right in yeah. order to kind of paint this film portrait of her mm. yeah mm. and then I, mm, I guess I just yeah I don't it is interesting. It's just an interesting relationship that she has with this family. 
and and it's very interesting at the end when this thing happens, which I might as well, when they sort of return, sort of at the end of the film, and um, Sophia tells her, oh, you know, we do love you. Like, you do realise that we love you, don't you? Mm. And then they all have this beautiful moment. I was like, well, we haven't... Have we seen that she loves... Does she actually... Like, I just don't think the film earned that moment. No, I agree with you. Like, I think that that is the point and I think that that's there, but only because in the extra textual kind of, like, you know, the paratext of the film, we know that that's what it's meant to be doing, which is saying that she's a member of the family. Mm. And... I do find it, you know, kind of impressive those moments where they think they're treating her as a member of the family, but then they also expect her to do, you know, servile duties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like when they're watching um, the TV together. And everyone's, yeah. You know, and yeah. She's like, can you go and get me this coffee? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, I, yeah. and I find it, you know, all of those kind of moments were great, or when they're like, say, go to the beach, and then the, Sophia says, it's, it's um, Claire's having a holiday, so you can't ask her to do stuff. You know, like all of that kind of. <laughs> yeah stuff was very interesting and could be kind of a condemnation of that whole system um but i didn't think that it did that particularly well i just i don't know if it's a facile uh, comparison or not but i did keep on thinking while i was watching the film of aquarius which oh, yeah. is a similar dynamic between a woman and her her help i have a friend it's an interesting who, tension in the film um mm. He's from Mexico City and he now lives in Melbourne and he was saying that, you know, having this kind of attention to that dynamic is is really great, particularly on a film that's kind of meant to be distributed and seen on a global scale mm. and spoke about it as a, a very um, kind of accurate portrayal of not particularly just that dynamic, but of life in Mexico City um, and that seeing it was great. And beyond that, and we can say that Coron has has been, you know, very kind of mindful in this way, seeing the, um, is it the Mexico dialect? Yeah. Mm. um, That that is extraordinarily rare in in Mexican films. Um, Mm. I feel like... You know, you know, you could count the number on one hand, I think, but I might be misremembering that that fact that my friend yeah, told I, me. But I, that that's I, like yeah. extremely to be respected and acknowledged that that's that he kept that in. Mm, yeah, uh, I see. I thought you would be won over by the sound design because I thought that was kind of incredible. It was felt like a three sixty degree sound design. It thing. does actually. That was the sound is really, really put interesting. Me I mean, I there were moments where I actually thought that there was like a commotion breaking out in the cinema audience and right. I turned around that's and realised actually oh, no, it's, when it's, it's the film. I did for a bit think that there were dogs barking outside my house <laughs> that it was just that that awful untrained dog in that oh god a dog <laughs> yeah and I thought that was a little bit of like an unspoken kind of suggestion that the mother in fact does not have time or maybe does not pay attention to her home because she hasn't well, well of course it's the father's fault as well maybe but he's been absent but the dog's not trained yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know yeah. and like how excruciating to have to deal with that anyway yeah, yeah, um yeah. because of course everyone should train their dogs and like you know live in harmony with them in that kind of way um but yes the sound design was great uh, and i am often impressed by sound designs if nothing else but <laughs> yeah I, yeah, not completely impressed by this film. I have to say I kind of prefer Gravity if we're comparing Quaron. Mm, um, okay. 100% same. I love that film. Yeah. I really do. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And sure, yeah. it's more indulgent. While it's more kind of obviously indulgent, I mean, maybe 
Roma is very indulgent, yeah. but kind of yeah. in a um, you know more off the beaten track way and a more, maybe a more self congratulatory way. Well, yeah. I don't know. Is that a I, ho- horrible thing to say? No, not really. I can totally see that. I mean, the yeah. fact that he decides to get an apartment, you know, building, and then remake his own childhood thing. It's like a it's like a Schenectady New York kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. Where yeah. there's this just endlessly going down this memory. Um, you know, this, these passages of memory. I've got yeah. this quote here that he was kind of using to excuse this thing because I was like, had a bit of a problem with this, like, this is the most navel-gazing thing I've seen in years. Uh-huh. But he's like, I wanted to understand, to put the pieces together. Borges talks about, uh, Jorge Louis Borges talks mm. about how memory is an opaque, shattered mirror, but I see it more as a crack in the wall. The crack is whatever pain happened in the past. We tend to put several coats of paint over it trying to cover that crack, but it's still there. So he kind of wanted to do this exca- excavating of memory in a way. That's a wonderful quote. Uh, quite actually I like yeah that. i thought it was I like really great lot. as well um because i, I think I, I like that more than roma <laughs> <laughs> because the most of the time we see men in this film they're kind of ludicrous like there's that martial arts mm. guy yeah who turns out to be a, a douche and interesting i mean i loved that moment i liked actually. his character same Where, yeah he was very well drawn oh god yeah he's such an asshole but when they're uh, having their training and they have yes. that guy coming to teach them and they all like fail to like stand on one leg, except for her. And I was like, oh, this is nice. This is a nice one. Like, it was I'll nice, but I knew what was going to happen. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I just thought, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, she's standing there kind of like slowly getting ready. And then anyway, she does it. I just, I mean, that, it was nice. It was still nice. But, and yeah. then an aeroplane flew over here. <laughs> <laughs> but also it was a scene with like a thousand people in it. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just yeah. so crazy that it's so intimate. And then suddenly you get a riot breaking out in the street underneath and it turns up, turns up in the shop and or you get this sort of scene of these men doing this martial arts stuff. Um, and I just want to very briefly mention that my favourite part of the whole film was the New Year's Eve party. Um, for what we've talked about, well, this is where this fire happens. It's quite beautifully shot. And it's mm. just, there's this sort of absurdity to it. There's the chaos of, there's a lot of characters and um, extras in these scenes. And I don't, it just really, there was like a life to to those moments that I think I was missing from the rest of the film. That, But I, I did really like that a lot. That moment. Right. That scene, that sequence. I like the bit where the mother announces to her family that she got a job at a publishing house and her son um, says, but you're a biochemist. (laughs) 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 I think that was the best bit of the movie. (laughs) Been there, yes. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, Roma is currently on Netflix. It's also at Acme for a while, I believe. Yeah. I don't know when it's finishing now. I couldn't find that information. It was extended to the 30th of December, I believe. But it was also on it. Lido for a bit in Hawthorne and also the classic Elstonwick, um, a couple of places in, in Melbourne. Which brings us to this month's Cultural Capital Film Diary. Also at Acme, you can catch Ryuki Sakamoto Coda from December 27 until wonderful, January 16. Wonderful documentary, 100% recommend. Um, a season of Billy Wilder films is showing at Acme called Mad Men and Wilder Women that runs from January 3 until 16. Christmas films are showing all over the place. At the Astor, you can catch Scrooge on December 17, It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas Eve, and Die Hard on Boxing Day. And finally, from 11am January 5 until January 7, you've got the chance to watch every single Marvel movie back-to-back at the Astor Theatre, except two, Spider-Man Homecoming and The Incredible Hulk are not screening for unspecified reasons. That's sad, because Spider-Man Homecoming I've watched a couple of weeks ago and is a genuinely fantastic movie. Um, it got a very I good reception, it. didn't it? Did. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I watched it. I was really surprised at how great it was. And I, look, this is a tangent. I'm sorry, but it's got a teen pick and it's got a superhero picture. Uh, both of these genres, and they both come together in this amazing plot twist. That's like the best thing ever. So, look, I really recommend watching it. 
Right. Well, you won't be seeing that um, as part of <laughs> the Astor Theatre's Marvel Marathon. My name is Will Dean Dixon. Hey, Will Dean. Papa. Tumble a bit and stumble to the kitchen. Most people call me Will, except for my mom, who calls me... Dumplin', I can't be late. This cannot exactly drive itself. Being a bit of a celebrity around here meant that she was too busy for me. You've got a hole in your left, by the way. <gasps> what? Oh, she didn't listen to me. Working. Directed by Anne Fletcher, Dumplin' is a modern take on the Misfits Can Fit In story set in a Texas small town pitting teenage Willow Dean, played by Danielle MacDonald, against her mother, played by Jennifer Aniston, and her best friend. In another film, this might have pit her against a narrow-minded conservative social scene, but there's no real enemy here. In fact, the main agitator in the narrative is Willow Dean herself, and the main takeaway of this story is one of shining self-worth. In the words of Dolly Parton, figure out who you are and do it on purpose. Anders, do you feel like this movie loves everyone for just who they are? (laughs) 150%, yes. This is such a sweet teen movie. Um, I love that you quoted Dolly Parton because I've got that written here on my script notes. (laughs) Find out who you are and then do it on purpose. It's sort of like the raison d'etre of the film. So... I'm pretty sure I ugly cried for the second half of this film. <laughs> Whoa, it's really? Like, yes. Amazing. I really, I haven't had a, this uh, much of an emotional connection to well, a teen film, let alone any film. Sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, should not scorn teen films. A, a film for um, a very long time. The Dolly Parton thing is really interesting. So basically this main character, Willow Dean, her nickname's is Dumplin'. Um, well, her mother calls her that. Um, and she sort of... Uh, she has a, well. She doesn't like being called Dumplin' because she's a you know big boned girl. She's um, well, she's fat, and she thinks she constantly. She sort of feels like her mum's constantly her mother, who's like obsessed with beauty pageants and stuff, and like leaves salads in the fridge for her. Is you know very passive aggressively judging her for her weight. So she takes solace in. Uh, and her sort of beloved aunt, who she has, the film sort of suggests she has a much closer relationship with aunt than a mother. Mm. They obsess over Dolly Parton. And what I liked about the film is that Dolly Parton's not just sort of thrown in there randomly. She's actually the point of the film. I half expected her to, so there's this drag bar where all of the queens sing Dolly Parton. Yeah. And I half expected Dolly Parton in the final scene to just show up on the stage. <laughs> um, she doesn't. She doesn't, sadly. Spoiler. But it's full of her music and like... I wanted more. I just have to say I was like, had been promised a Dolly Parton soundtrack and she even wrote some new songs for the film. But I did want more anyway. Uh, Just just be warned, Dolly Parton fans, not just waterwall Dolly. No, but there is a lot of Dolly. (laughs) That's That's um, true. uh, I just want to, sorry, the the bit that, I mean, you just mentioned that, that essential kind of crux of the film, which is that she's, that, that, Willow Dean is kind of closer to her aunt and that she does feel and says outright to her mother that she thinks her mother doesn't love her because she's fat and that her mother is obsessed with looks. And I don't, I think that the script was a bit weak in that regard because I don't think it, if that's what it wanted us to feel as an audience, which is that the Jennifer Aniston mother character was cruel to her daughter. I don't think it does that very well. 
Willow Dean kind of seems to be overreacting to her to her mother's hatred of her and there's this one bit where they're backstage at a beauty pageant and someone else walks up and says to Jennifer Aniston points to the best friend who's you know skinny basically is a um just a traditional kind of beauty and says this must be your daughter and Jennifer Aniston hugs Dumplin and like without an ounce of shame or embarrassment says no this is my daughter Willow Dean and I just thought that was such a beautiful moment and that there was nothing in that that suggested that she was ashamed of her daughter yeah and if that's what the film I mean that's kind of what the film balances on and I think it maybe wanted to push that a little bit more because I came out of it kind of thinking but then maybe this is a really great analysis of like teen kind of shame and fitting in and being a misfit yeah. and learning to accept yourself because as a teen you do develop these completely self-obsessed ways of seeing yourself right so she probably does project well exactly and that. this comes into an interesting point which is if you're not if you're not actively supporting your daughter then you can take that as um the child you could take that as rejection that's um, true if you yeah. know what i mean uh what the other interesting thing about this film you know they're working class characters uh, Jennifer Aniston's character, she was, you know, as she says at one point in an argument, well, sorry, I couldn't go to every one of your Dolly Parton parties, um, but I had to, you know, be, go out there and work all of these jobs to, like, afford our house and, you know, all that kind of yep. stuff. Yep. Um, so that's all in there. Um, but I agree that was sort of the intro. Like, the film doesn't want to turn the mother into this evil character, and nor should it really. And so it maybe perhaps goes too far the other way until yeah. the, the payoff it- at the end. I don't know, and it also didn't want to demonise the Danielle McPherson character. No. Because she's our our main, you know, way into the film and we're meant to see her as this, like, societally maligned character who is then fighting for acceptance. I just felt like there was something there that doesn't quite work, but, like, there are all of these other things in the film that that really do work and, in the end, the message does really fit and kind of, you know, is really balanced. Yeah, and I thought it was quite clever. She, Willa Dean, is clearly... I mean, despite all uh, our conversation we've just had about her um, insecurity, she's also, on the other hand, perhaps the most confident character in the whole film. Mm. Um, and I love this portrait of Texas that I was, you know, they're not all, you know, it's not like red state bigots, mm. like, yep. you know, our stereotypical idea of Texas. Um, so I really loved that. Um, I think that maybe the most confident character in the film was, was it Millie? I forget who played her, but the other... Yes. Like the other kind of fat girl. So there's two of them in the class, which is, you know, has this film has been praised for doing that, not just saying here's like a motley crew of misfits and we've only we've only got one of each because that's all we need to tick boxes yeah kind of thing she was great she gave like such a killer performance i loved her and her mother played by kathy najimi who is always a goldmine and i'm glad she got to dance in the final scene (laughs) um yeah yeah that was great i did like you know she was a bit of a complicated character uh this main character um because there was that sort of hilarious moment where uh, this other character is inspired by her signing up for the beauty pageant uh, that she wants to sign up to and she goes well what is this I'm not the Joan of Arc of fat girls like (laughs) so she has this like weird so she goes on a a journey as well I guess it's not just her forcing the world around her to come to her like that's what I liked all of these characters actually went on journeys of acceptance which sounds like such a cliched thing to say but it really I don't know, it really spoke to me. Yeah, 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 it's so true. I also just need to shout out to Harold Perrineau, who I have, I think everyone has had a crush on him since, um, if not before, then at least 
Young Hearts Run Free in Romeo and Juliet in 1997. Oh, yes. Cool. And look, he doesn't look quite as good in a dress in this film, but he looks pretty good and I just he's you know I, I I just love his screen presence and he's so great and he's just kind of always plays this really um terrific outspoken character um I mean obviously Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet is one of those but anyway mm. and um, I think this is I mean it's been a sort of uneven year for Netflix's sort of teen films they've released so many of them uh, and rom-coms um and that kind of thing shout out to all the boys I've loved before all the boys I loved before which is a great film top film Less of a shout out to, um, oh, what was it, Insatiable, don't watch that. <laughs> I thought this was, yeah, up there with the best of them. Certainly up there with um, a, to a, all the boys I've loved before. Yeah, a Christmas Prince. Are we talking that level of... I, <laughs> I'm yet the to Princess see Switch. the Christmas Prince or the Princess Switch. Also, it has been a great year for RuPaul's Drag Race alumni in yes. movies because Ginger Minj was in Dumplin' right. um, and there was a film clip released of um, a bunch of drag queens um, lip syncing to Jolene, a remix of Jolene, including Alaska Thunderfuck, who's maybe my fave. Also in A Star Is Born, Shangela and Willem, who were in the drag bar. At the it's been a big there. year for drag queens helping protagonists uh, <laughs> self-actualize. <laughs> okay. And that's when I decided enough was enough. I know that look. What's going on? I think I'm gonna sign up for the pageant. <laughs> it's gonna be like a protest in heels. Willardine Opal. Hey, y'all. If you're signing up, I am too. Wait, no, I'm not the Jonah Archifact girls. <laughs> this is going to be so much fun. Okay, like if you were to critically think about this film for five seconds, it may possibly fall apart because, well, on the se- in the sense that they, so this group of ragtag misfits go into mis- the uh, teen pageant wanting to stage a protest and not taking part in it. And over the course of events, of course, they come to realise, oh, no, they actually do want to take part in it. That's true. But the makeover montage is very short and very well done, I thought. Yes, I I mean, I love a good makeover montage and this one's I think it's... I don't think it's ascribing any conventional qualities to anyone. No, it's not. And I did... I think it did manage to pull off this very delicate tightrope walk. Mm. It's not... A complete revolution because I mean, well, they talk about being revolutionaries, and then you know, it, the, the pageant yeah. assimilates. Well, it doesn't assimilate, does it? Because they are still who they are, I mean, I, and so they which is how it gets it, away right? with it. Because yeah, they, of they the don't change who they at are. The end. Yeah, yeah, they change yeah. the pageant. They cha- yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah, yeah, they change it from the inside. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I I think it it pulled that off quite. What could have been a very fraught thing, they pull off quite well. And it really hits every emotional beat. Yeah, I cried through a lot of it. I feel yes. like Andy's sitting at the side here being like, why are you guys still talking about this <laughs> no, movie? Oh, I wanted to know because um, Danielle McDonald was amazing in Patty Cakes. Is she, She's great. Is she, does she deliver here? Yeah. Is she Australian or am yeah. I making that She's up? She's Melbourne. No. I think, yeah. Melbourneish? Maybe. Yeah. yeah, she is Aussie. Yeah, yeah cool. totes Aussie. Um, yeah, all the way. Yeah, she's great, cool. actually. Look, and she doesn't always get the Texas draw, but then neither does Jennifer Aniston. So what are you yeah, going to do? <laughs> um, it's a good movie, I think. 
Yeah, I think it is too. Yeah. Okay. Well, another Jennifer has a movie out at the moment, and yes. I wouldn't put it, <laughs> wouldn't talk about it in the same enthusiasm you guys <laughs> have just been talking about Dumplin. Um, second act has Jennifer Lopez's first film since 2015, and I don't know if you either of you saw I Feel Pretty earlier this year. No, I did not. What is that? Okay, I Feel Pretty was a movie uh, in which Amy Schumer uh, is. Oh, she has a concussion on that. And yeah, she falls off her exercise yes, bike and then yes, becomes yes. very high up in a cosmetics company very, through a series of extremely un- improbable events. A very similar storyline to the second act, I've got to say. Um, Jennifer Lopez is working at a shopping Queens. Um, as a, she has a lot of great ideas about sales and about incorporating the customer into making company decisions. And petty, like middle management, won't, won't let her be who she is. And then her best friend's uh, teenage son turns out to be an amazing hacker. Um, and I think in what is possibly the only case in cinema history of a young male white guy working really, really hard to facilitate the career of an older African-American woman through using the internet, um, decides to make her this completely fictitious resume in which she's been to Harvard and she's got climbed Kilimanjaro and done all these very white things, which is pointed out early on. It's like, you know, um, so because she has a birthday wish in which she says, I wish street smarts could equal book smarts. Um, and then has oh. this improbable rise to the heights of, oh. of marketing in a, in a cosmetics company. Um, <laughs> alongside best friend Vanessa Hudgens. Uh, and Charlene Yee turns out to be this, is possibly the best thing in the movie. She has like a few scenes in which she's, I can't remember the word for have a fear of heights, but she works in like the 60th floor of this building. And, <laughs> anyway, yeah, she, so she can't go any, near any windows at work. It's like a running gag. Um, um, Milo Ventiglia from yes, yeah, from God, yeah, is he's a sexy man. Is a sexy man from and what? is is from uh, Gilmore Girls. Okay, don't know. Okay, um, and this is us and a bunch of other things. This is us. Yeah. Um. Anyway, he plays J Lo's husband, um, who loves baseball and sort of stuff. Anyway, it's a bunch of cliches. It really kind of doesn't work because it has this whole you need to be who you are to, and you can't rely on anyone else to be successful. Slash, the world is also pitted against you if you haven't been to university. So it's this weird, confused sort of message in which it's there's a few lols, but it's really not that amazing, um, and it's very similar to I Feel Pretty. So I was going to go and see it just for like the good times, but do you not recommend? There's so much stuff out there at the moment that I don't. I think there are funnier, sweeter, better made movies than this. Even though J Lo is can be amazing. I mean, out of sight. Like Dumplin, possibly. Like Dumplin, stay at home and watch Dumplin. Or um, watch also, Anne Fletcher's earlier movie, The Guilt Trip. With Barbara Streisand. The Proposal? Being a nagging mother. Oh, with Seth Rogen? Yeah. That one. Oh, I didn't realise she made that. The Proposal I think she also made, which I haven't seen, but I feel like we shouldn't talk about it. Okay, should we talk about 27 Dresses, which she also made? <laughs> yes, I haven't seen that, but I've heard better things about that than The Proposal. <laughs> Do you ever look at your life and wonder how you got there? If you made different choices, would you be happy? Arthur got his MBA from Duke. He's the best man for the job. No, sir. I am. I just wish we lived in a world where street smarts equal book smarts. Screw them. Who? The educated people in their fancy houses who name their kids after fruit and climb Kilimanjaro. The only thing stopping you is you. Uh, so The Battle of Buster Scruggs is also screening on Netflix. It's a new Coen Brothers movie that's made up of six vignettes all concerning death and the act of dying. Um, and if you've seen any Coen Brothers movies before, then you'll know, you'll be quite familiar with the way that they balance the extreme violence that com- and the comic and the scabrous and the witty. Um, 
so a lot of people who've been talking about this film have been singling out various vignettes as being their favourite or the best mm. or something like that. Um, but I kind of think, do you think it kind of holds together as a complete film or did you really see that this was initially an Amazon TV series? That yeah. Began? Uh, no, I think it does hold together, although as any anthology film of this ilk would uh, demonstrate, some are better than others. My absolute favourite, I think, was the last one, this oh, sort of metaphysical wagon Stagecoach trip. tripped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's like Stagecoach meets... Um, uh, the Grim Reaper. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's this uh, it's Seven this, Seal or something. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I watched it, and it's sort of. I mean, so they're all um, all of these vignettes. They vary in time, length, um, and quality, but they're all concerned really with death. Really, yeah. There's the an unusual cruelty to a lot of these. There films, is, and actually. you won't. You, you can't escape it. Death and storytelling. These are the two sort of key. Uh, things that I got from the film. Yeah, it was fine. It's it's good to watch on Netflix. I don't think it's their strongest film. I loved the one with uh, Zoe Kazan. Kazan. I was going to say, yes. yeah, I thought that might be the ending of that. Was yes. Amazing. Yeah. Um, the first two, I could see what was going to happen and then it happened. Um, and it was sort of Tarantino West in its cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but, you know, but that, that wagon. Um, sequence the last vignette it's it's sort of like a one act play ish but it's also functions sort of as the film's epilogue and because there's sort of a long conversation about telling stories and about death and escaping death and the connection between these two things and we often think of storytelling as this sort of life-affirming that's a cliche that Joan Didion said, you know, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Well, this sort of subverts that and says, well, what are you not thinking about when you're telling stories? You're not thinking about death. And then it sort of makes you then reinterpret the rest of the film through that lens. So I thought that was quite clever. But having said that, I don't think it's amazing. And I thought the visual effects were a bit all over the place. Really? Okay, cinematography was my favourite thing about it. I thought it looks absolutely incredible because I think it's the first time they've used digital photography or they've they've shot wholly digitally. There were some real cool shots. Uh, The shot from inside his guitar, you know? Yeah, at the very beginning. The wonderful thing about Westerns is that they love to, a lot of uh, Westerns love to play around with like the expansive open planes and then like these uh, man-made constructs of these buildings that sort of sit in the middle of nowhere, like the bank, for example. And you go, and you know, there's the famous, you know, last shot of the searchers and all that kind of stuff of like indoor and outdoor space. Well, this took it to sort of an absurd length with this shot from inside. Uh, Buster Scruggs is a, is a character in this film. Inside his guitar, yeah. looking out <laughs> the bloody strings. Yeah, it was great. Uh, yeah. yeah, so stuff like that was fun and. Um, uh, I quite like the Liam Neeson yes, one too. That one, I found yeah, it a bit with, gimmicky the way with, Yeah, right, okay. The way they avoided dialogue except for, for when Dud, when Dudley for, Dursley yes, was, was yes, doing amazing. When, his, when he was uh, being an orator. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, it's a bit on the nose. But anyway, okay. yeah, I, yeah, I so mind it. The the imagery of the wild of the, the West and seeing Monument Valley and all this sort of stuff. I just thought yeah. it was gorgeous. Or you could just watch a better film. Well, you don't know. It could uh, be you don't know until you um, but I, there was a lot of CGI that I just didn't do. Things yeah, like. there was a bit of stuff like that. I felt like the way it was used in a kind of quicker way. I think my favourite was the Tom Waits gold panning one. Oh. That looked absolutely sublime. Yeah. This Hidden Valley. That, that did look cool. Yeah, yeah. I agree. But also, but yeah. Yeah, yeah strengths and weaknesses. Um, but it. yeah, worth, worth streaming on Netflix, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, folks, things have a way of escalating out here in the West. I think the boy's telling the story. Well, we'll just have to see. You know the story. There are two kinds of people. Lucky and unlucky. 
hale and frail. Upright and sinning. Now, dead or alive. The next episode, which we're going to be recording in early January, will be a best of 2018. So we're going to be taking a look at films that we didn't get to talk about and some that we did. But for the purposes of today's closing, we're going to look at films that were overlooked. So there's a whole bunch of movies that probably won't get mentioned in anybody's top lists anywhere. These are films that we might have just seen at a um, festival that have screened once and might be very hard to find or they may be streaming. This is part of, our, I think, our job here is to point you toward movies you might otherwise miss. And so that's what we're going to be doing now. Cool. Anders. <coughs> Yes. Can I start with you and any um, films that you feel like were overlooked and should be singled out for Yes, I have a small list of films. Um, should I go through them? Yeah. I, okay, well, look, my number one, I think, and it's a bit hard because I don't know how people are going to see it, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, the Deserted, Simon Ming Liang's virtual reality film that oh, plays yes. yeah. at Myth. I thought this was a really beguiling, slow burn ghost story. It is a virtual reality film. goes for about 55 minutes. Its pace made it affecting. Um, and there is this one sort of extraordinary sequence where this storm rolls in over the uh, main character. Main character's lost his, um, recently lost his wife and his mother. And he's sort of being haunted by their presences, but in a very sort of soft, not horrific kind of way. Anyway, there's this amazing sequence where a storm rolls into um, town and his house is just covered in a torrential downpour. Um, much as Melbourne experienced yesterday for five minutes. Um, and because it's virtual reality, you feel that really viscerally and it's sort of the key emotional point of the film. And it really, I don't know, it really worked for me. So that was my number one in terms of overlooked. I thought it was beautiful. Number two on my list, Columbus, which oh, has yes. no home release in Australia. Um, but I really hope it gets one. And the reason I saw this is because Eloise introduced it at Acme. Uh, I did. Truth, it's I on think. American iTunes, yeah. I think. It's set in this American town, Columbus. Um, which is full of the most amazing modernist architecture. Uh, and then these two characters sort of meet each other and gently, ever ever so gently, improve their circumstances. Um, I thought it was beautiful and really meditative um, in the sense that it induces meditation. Like, it's <laughs> quite a chill, chill really relaxed film. Um, that's that. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to Princess Sid, Stephen Cohn's film. Uh, he's a master of the nicely observed American indie film uh, about real, quote-unquote, real people. And I found this to be quite a wise film about queer sexuality, about what life's for, um, about the relationship uh, between women or about human uh, between human beings, how messy life can be um, and how, how that's okay. It's quite a comforting mm. film. Uh, that's screening on Netflix. Um, very smart dialogue too. Uh, shout out to Hard Paint, the queer Brazilian <laughs> film that played at yeah. Myth um, about a teenage camboy. It's a compelling look at urban and virtual alienation and it has the most beautiful final shot of a film that I've seen this year. The final moment is just absolutely stunning um, and it only lasts for like a, a second probably um, in film time. I'm sure it will pop up somewhere but I don't think it has at the moment. Right. Um Okay. And then, um, briefly, Game Night, uh, yes. the American comedy. Um, I thought it was laugh out loud, funny and clever. And you know why I think it works? I think it's because Jason Bateman, Rachel McAdams and Kyle Chandler are all perfectly cast. And they both play to but subvert our sort of expectations of their characters. Um, so I really recommend this. I think it's on. It'll be on iTunes. Amazon Prime, I think, has it streaming. Um, yeah, I didn't see that at the cinema, but... Yeah, recommend it. Yeah, I can't wait. I've heard nothing but really good things about it. Um, yeah, and, you know, it's 
like sometimes American comedies get it so right. This is one yep. of those ones. And then finally, a brief shout out to Neo Yokio Pink Christmas, which is streaming on Netflix. Um, Neo Yokio is this hilariously weird uh, anime TV series um, written by the Vampire Weekend guy, Ezra Koenig, oh, yeah. um, and starring Jaden Smith and uh, Susan Sarandon and Jude Law, uh, all voicing anime characters. And it's just, this is the Christmas special that came out a week ago, also on Netflix. It's just really quirky, really inventive. It's not perfect, but it's got this wonderful, I don't know, the vibe of this show is, it's like, it's quirky, but not cutesy. Right. Um, Yeah. And it's the main character voiced by Jane Smith is just, um, yeah, really sort of funny. He's this sort of wealthy uh, Bratish uh, playboy in this like futuristic version of New York called Neo Yokio who hunts demons. He is Susan's random is his aunt, Aunt Agatha, who like you know sends him around hunting demons to make money essentially. If you're not into anime, it's a good perfect gateway ju- drug and seasonally appropriate. Yes, totally. Um, speaking of weird animation films, do you predict that D- uh, Detective Pikachu will be on your best of 2019 list? In <laughs> I'm so excited for Detective Pikachu. Uh, I saw yesterday that Sonic's getting a real life movie, but <laughs> yeah. less keen for that, I've got to say. Um, but yeah, uh, hopefully. We'll see. Yeah. I love that trailer. <laughs> <laughs> if you were here at our last recording, you would know that I was really unimpressed by the trailer. <laughs> uh, we'll have to review it next year. Is it fair to say? As to why yeah, exactly. Why is uh, Pikachu furry? <laughs> is that canon? I'm not not the right person to ask, I'm sorry. Anyway, I don't have that many, but I'll just mention a couple of films that people might have missed out on otherwise. Some of them are, I've got a bit of an Australian thing going on. Cool. Well, one of them is Terra Nullius. I don't think anyone who knows Mm. me would be surprised that I put that, uh, that's probably going to be on my top 10 films of the year, listed by um, artist collective Soda Jerk, who currently live in New York, and they've made this um, film that's screened at... uh, Acme, I think earlier in the year, kind of a compilation of a bunch of Australian and New Zealand and some other countries that had Australian funding films um, and kind of mashed up the visuals and the sound, um, some sound effects, some foley and some dialogue and stuff was all being like kind of put up to rearrange this narrative of Australian post-colonialism and um, colonial violence and everything to kind of shift that narrative around. Anyway, it's like an extraordinary work, very strong in terms of what Soda Jerk do and really important for Australian film history, I think, and history overall, really um, politically aware um, and very important for opening up the discussion of where films need to go. Um, My second, I guess, is maybe thematically related to that. And I think it was a film that uh, effectively was made last year in 2017, but I'm going to put in my 2018 list because I saw it. I think it only got a couple of festival screenings last year. And I don't know if it's released. It might have been on television or something at some point, but it's Warwick Thornton's We Don't Need a Map, mm, which right, is his yeah. documentary that I that screened at Acme earlier in the year with their, um, with Sweet Country, I think, or some of his other films screened when Sweet Country was released. Anyway, um, and it's a documentary. I feel like there's a little kind of um, prelude in the film where Warwick Thornton says he might have gotten in trouble or... Um, that media was displeased with him. He must have said something about how white Australians had kind of appropriated the Southern Cross as something that that um, erased the First Nations kind of 
um, spiritual connection to it or, you know, mm, cultural right, connection yeah. to the Southern Cross. Anyway, he said something about that and everyone got angry apparently um, about about him, him saying that. So he'd made this documentary to kind of try and understand where, I guess, his culture is coming from when they think about the Southern Cross and where white Australians are coming from when they think about the Southern Cross um, and what what is a clash there and what it actually means to kind of appropriate other cultures, things. And he interviews a whole bunch of people. Um, and it's very interesting um, and very kind of level-headed documentary. Anyway, I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Do you know if where someone might be able to see it? I don't know. It was I saw it on my Swinburne University online network thing. So okay, perhaps yeah. you know people with university logins might be able to see it in that same way. Cool. Um, but okay. I don't know otherwise. I was just in the Acme shop and they are selling posters of the film, so <laughs> it might be you know available somewhere or might pop up where you are. Anyway, my other one is well, I wanted to mention Loveless. But Mm, I don't think that's really, you know, unrecognised. It just might be something that people have forgotten about. Funny that you mention that because it may come up again. And my Mm -hmm. last one is um, a film that I saw at MIFF called Fugue by Agnieszka Smozinska, which I don't know if it will get a release. So her previous film was the um, Polish Mermaid musical, The Lure, and that did get a release in Melbourne, I think. Oh, yeah, I do. Point. I think, it sh- well, at least it showed at MIFF. This film is less marketable because you can't call it a Polish Mermaid <laughs> musical because it's not. It's about a woman played by Gabriela Muscala, who was also the screenwriter of the film, who has a memory loss and then w- w- kind of opens. It's, kind, it's quite absurd, um, but very interesting in the way that it analyzes both her experience and then the experience of her family around her when she kind of tries to reintegrate herself after this period of significant memory loss. Um, anyway, it's fascinating. It's very well made in terms of style and contains maybe, I mean, I've seen Cold War now and nothing against Cold War, but maybe Fugue contains the best dance scene I've seen all Whoa. year in a film. That's a lot of dance scenes this wow. year. A lot of great dance scenes, there aren't there? Yeah. Well, that aforementioned uh, final shot of um, hard paint right. dancing. Okay. Mm, okay. Great. Better um, than the Suspiria dance. <laughs> Well, less gruesome. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, just that da- one dancing. Um, and, um, yeah. Anyway, there. That's just a couple that you know people have probably seen. At least Loveless, I know, has been more widely recognised. But I think I saw it early in the year. So yeah, it has. Uh, in fact, I forgot about it until a little while ago. Yeah. And by a little while ago, I mean yesterday. Um, <laughs> so you know, people might need a bit of um, definitely yes jogging okay. memory. Anyway, yeah. Um, my first one I wanted to mention is also right from the beginning of the year that probably a lot of people have forgotten about, which is um. Nora Twomey's The Breadwinner, which is this animated movie about an 11-year-old Afghan girl who disguises herself as a boy to work when her father is arrested. Um, it's made by the same Irish studio that made The Story of the Kells and one of 2015's best films, The Song of the Sea. Um, it's really harrowing and quite political, and it's also uh, just really, really w- such a well-told story and such an unusual story for them to tell. Um, it's screening on Netflix at the moment, so it's not that hard to find. Um, Elo, I think you were one of the first people in the world to see uh, Acute Misfortune, which is... <gasps> I, oh, yeah. I heard yesterday's probably coming out either March or April. That's amazing. I was almost going to put it on my list, but I'm glad you did. Yeah, because I feel like people might have forgotten about it because it screened, what, tw- three times at NIF or something, I think? Yeah, and yeah. sold out all so. the screenings and everyone who went there was like, this is great. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so stunning people sh- film. should get excited about it because it's going to come to cinemas soon. 
I'd send both of you guys to go and see um, Ryosuke Hamaguchi's Asako 1 and 2. When it was at yes. This, and neither of you... No, I saw it. Yeah, no, neither of It didn't really oh. st- stick with either. No, I thought it was very flawed. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, I didn't mind it. I, yeah, I didn't. I, I kind of was a bit bitter that you had given it such a high <laughs> rating yes. because I was like, I wasted my time. No, that's not true. I shouldn't say Well, that, yeah, no, I understand. It may not be everybody's cup of tea. It's also not very easy to find unless you go to the American movie site. I don't know. The first 15 minutes, 20 minutes I thought were the best, one of the best things I've seen all year. And the rest of the film, yeah, it's kind of patchy and ambitious. <laughs> Uh, the way it suddenly goes realist with its love story and coming of age story and weird yeah, double ganger that that's, twist. That's fair. I did. I th- I can't remember it all, but I think I enjoyed the beginning more than I did. Yeah, the there were some great comic. Petered out. Yeah, it, yeah, it did. It kind of turned into this. Well, it, d- it didn't have a happy, happy go lucky ending mm-hmm. of a romantic drama. So, and it also wasn't tragic either. It was just kind of like realistic. Yeah, give me some it, tragedy. Yeah, right. Or something. So the one where she was. Her boyfriend was like the wildly successful. Yeah, well, he got well. She fell in love with this yeah. guy, and then he disappears, and then and she fl- meets his doppelganger a few years later, and yeah, it turns yeah, out yeah. the original guy became yep, this famous yep, guy. Yep, yeah. yep. Anyway, um, that's a psycho one or two. You might not like it. But I did. Kalik Ala is best known for making Beyonce's Lemonade film project, and his documentary Black Mother is probably going to be forgotten by everybody, or very very hard to find. It's um just as amazing as I thought Lemonade was, and it's this documentary about modern Jamaica. He puts the whole thing together in this really interesting way where he goes and interviews people but then overlays their dialogue over different things, old Amazing. pictures of them. Yeah, have you, did you see it? No, oh, I wanted to. God, yeah, it's fantastic. It's only 77 minutes. But it has this whole structure of this woman getting pregnant, um, like having the experience in the pregnancy, then giving birth, and then he kind of puts all these different shots from Jamaica in there. I mean, it's a place I would love to be able to go, but as a white guy, it's just I'm not on the cards. <laughs> a friend of mine went there and had an extremely bad experience. Um, and... Yeah, so I'd just be able to have that sort of access and look at the spirituality and look at the culture and go into the corner stores and talk to the sex workers mm. and talk to the people who are running churches and all this sort of stuff. It's just whole, I feel like I've got a really, really thorough, very short um, picture of, Jamaica, of modern Great. Jamaica. Maybe it will show up on movie. Yeah, but it's quite possibly yeah. something like that, yeah. And finally, Genevieve Bailey's documentary about Australian men's experience of mental illness, Happy Sad Man, will probably turn up on ABC at some point in the next nine months and I highly recommend catching that if you can. It's very surprising and edifying. Fantastic. Yeah. Great recommendations, cool. guys. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Thanks for the re- reminding me about Fugue. I yes. really wanted to see that. Great. I hope yeah. that we get a chance to. So do I. Uh, and uh, next episode, you'll hear our picks for our favourites of 2018. Yes, and though also those of some oh, of the yes. members of Myth's Critic Campus. And, and other friends at the pod. Yes, and Ella, you might get a mention as well from somebody else who liked Columbus quite a lot. Oh, I hope mm, so. Just a little sneak preview of some of the material we'll be hearing in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy the end of your year, listeners. Yes, and have a fantastic Christmas and uh, catch some movies and we'll be back with you in a few weeks. Cool. Cool.